All right. Before we begin our time of teaching this morning, I'd like if you would pray with me. Oh, Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and you keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey you. But we have sinned, done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands. We have refused to listen to your word. Lord, you are in the right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. Oh, Lord, we, our leaders, our families, our ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But you, our Lord, are merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against you. Even though we have not obeyed you, our God, not followed your instructions because of Jesus. Your mercy extended to us because of Jesus. Your forgiveness extended to us because of Jesus. Your love poured out to us because of Jesus. And by your grace, today we rejoice as forgiven and liberated people, not because we've suddenly become better, but because Jesus was perfect and he can handle the problems of sinners like us. We rejoice in the freedom that we have in him. And this morning we pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and that you would silence the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into our time together, I want you to take out, if you have a sermon notes, take that out. If you have a bulletin, take that out. And I want you to write down something on there. I want you to write the names of three people that you know who don't know Christ. The names of three people that you know who don't know Christ. I'll give you a minute or so. Okay, um, keep that for later. So last week we started this series, uh, Many Disciples But One Mission. And we talked about what God's mission is. The title was that God is a missionary God and we talked, uh, discussed, well, what does that mean? What is God after? You know, we talk about a business has as its mission this or that. But what's God's mission? And we looked at Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, that God said he is seeking people, pursuing people who will declare their allegiance to him, who will bow their knee to him. And so we said that God's mission is to make worshipers of all people. God's mission is to make worshipers of all people. 
And next week we're going to talk about pursuing that mission globally as individuals and as a church. And today we want to talk about pursuing that mission locally. Now thinking as a, as a church, uh, as a local fellowship, and thinking as individuals, people who love Jesus, how, how, how do we carry out this mission to reach uh, people and make worshipers of them locally? Do we ask them to come to us or do we go to them? Do we ask people who are not yet worshipers to come to us or do we go to them? And we talked about this idea last week when we said that God was the ultimate missionary. He sent Jesus Christ, his son, to this earth. Now, we have a, a phenomenon that has developed the last 40 years or so in America with churches uh, becoming attractional and saying, we're going to try to lure people to what we believe and to our faith by having the greatest time on a Sunday morning. So we want to make sure that the pastor is witty and smart and very engaging with the people. We want to have a, a, a knockout worship band that plays at Hard Rock Cafe Friday night and pray, plays at the church on Sunday morning, really quality worship band. And we want to have the kids ministry compete with uh, Disney World. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try to lure people in and it's called the attractional church model. Come to us. Come and see what we have to offer you. Now, I praise God for the churches that are successfully seeing people become worshipers through that. Here's the, here's the fundamental problem. Uh, well, there's two problems that I see with that. One is I don't see that as a biblical model of church. The other one is that it ends up saying the ministers, the ones who are going to try to make worshipers out of all those people are limited to the pastor who's preaching, the kids, men, people, the worship team. And everybody else, the rest of you, your job, our job is to simply invite people to come to where the action is. I look at scripture differently than that. I look at church differently than that. And I look at your role and my role and your calling and my calling different from that. You remember the verse that we looked at last week as Jesus sat down with his disciples one of the last times he was with them before he went back to heaven. And he looked around these 11 men gathered there and he said this to them. As my Father has sent me, so I am what? Sending you. Do you see the dispatching element of that verb? God sent me here to you. He didn't say you come to me. He sent me here to you. And in the same way, I am sending. I'm, you go out from here. I'm sending you into the world. And if you know anything about church history, you know that the, the, all those disciples did that. They went out. And most of them were executed for their testimony and their witness in different places around the world. And so our philosophy here at Keystone is not that you um, bring people to where the action is. Don't misunderstand me. I want to encourage you to invite your friends who don't know Jesus, your family members who don't know Jesus, your colleagues at work, your classmates. Bring them here. And one of the misconceptions that we often have is that I will only bring someone who don't know, doesn't know Jesus to my church if that's a particular Sunday morning that the pastor is giving a, a gospel presentation and an altar call. Here's the problem with that. I mean, just from sociological research, most people do not 
make an instantaneous decision to follow Christ. Uh, statistics say that someone has heard the gospel at probably seven times typically before they say yes to Jesus. And they've heard a lot of other stuff besides the gospel. And what happens when you bring someone to a, a worship service like this, there's all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit is using in their lives to kind of say, make them go, huh? Well, that's interesting. I don't get that. And they talk, <coughs> excuse me, they talk with you about it later. In other words, God is working not just uh, dealing with information. You have to have this information to come to Jesus. We have to dismantle all kinds of things in people's lives usually before they say yes to Jesus. And all of that can take place through the worship. It can take place through the people that they meet here and the conversation they have, the warmth they feel. All kinds of things that God can use quite apart from the information. Because after all, the problem of your friend who doesn't know Jesus is not primarily informational as we'll see later as we get on all right let me just give you some uh, a, a, a kind of a lay of the land with our the United States of America where we at, are at concerning following people following Jesus so you look at you look at Christianity in America and you see a steady decline it's going the wrong direction and we think why can that why is that so, for example, from 2007 to 2014, the number of people in America who said, I, I, I'm a Christian, dropped by 8%. Now, the population is somewhere around 327 million people today in America. 8% is a lot of people. Those are big numbers. This despite the fact that we live in probably the most free climate when it comes to religion, especially the Christian religion, that any country has ever known, that any people anywhere have ever known. We, none of us have to worry about persecution. Oh, I understand we, we get upset when people uh, speak ill of us and we don't like it when there are court cases where Christians aren't allowed to exercise their freedom of speech and freedom of uh, religious beliefs. We understand there's some, there's some things that are unsettling especially on the horizon but compared to much of the world for the past 2,000 years we've got it easy the money that you gave this morning to support the ministry of Keystone Church you get a tax deduction for that that's 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 government law and the money that we receive as a church we don't have to pay taxes on that's because of federal law and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I get a tax break on my housing expenses through the years. There, if you were considering the call of God on your life and, and you weren't sure you wanted to do it, think of that. <laughs> and that's all endorsed by the federal government. None of us had to go through checkpoints this morning to get here to worship we don't have to have uh, armed guards at the door to make sure that no uh, people come in here and try to break up this assembly and we don't have to meet in a basement and we don't have to meet in the woods. And despite all of that, despite the opportunity for our faith to flourish, the numbers are going south and not north. And yet when you look at the first 300 years of Christian Christianity where the environment was the exact opposite, the, the, the church literally blew up. And this was, this was before Constantine declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. For 300 years, under great persecution, the, the, the numbers were off the charts. We're going to see just a little bit the book of Acts. 
All right, that's where we're going. So get your Bibles out. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We'll read the first couple of verses. I have two main points this morning. And the first one is, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about evangelism, although I'm going to use the, word, the phrase spiritual conversations instead, because I fear that too often evangelism connotes in our minds, I sit down with someone and I go from A to Z. I, I share the gospel and they say yes. When I talk about evangelism, I'm thinking about spiritual conversations, and I might be in the middle of their journey toward Christ or at the beginning of their journey toward Christ or at the very end uh, kind of cleaning up after a lot of people have already invested in them. So spiritual conversations, simply being able to talk about matters of faith with people. It's gospel passion that incites spiritual conversations. That's my first point this morning. It's your passion about the gospel and my passion about the gospel that incites spiritual conversations. Acts 8.1, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. This is right after Stephen has had this amazing speech uh, to Jewish leaders and they were furious at him and they picked up stones and they stoned him to death. And Saul, one of the witnesses there, endorsed this. Saul was going to later become the apostle Paul he, at this point, is a zealous enforcement of the Jewish law. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, get that. So the apostles, the pastors, the church leaders all stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else scattered. Everybody else is scattered because they're fearful for their lives. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Let me just stop right there. So what has happened, going back, Jesus ascends back into heaven. There's about, there's about 120 known Christians at that point. And then Peter preaches this amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And in an instant, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. So now we're up to 3,120 Christians. You go two more chapters. And now suddenly the number is up to 5,000 adult men. It says not counting women and children. So when you count the women and children in and the teenagers that came to Christ, we might be at, say, 12, 15,000 Christians, just in a matter of a couple chapters, in a matter of really several weeks. And you go two more chapters to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and it says the number of believers was increasing rapidly. Maybe we're at 20,000 Christians in a matter of several months. And all of this within a climate of great hostility. And, and the Jews didn't want them to preach. And they're taking the apostles to prison. And they're flogging them with whips. And they're, they're just meeting all kinds of opposition. And people come to faith like crazy. And here's more picture of this kind of um, organized persecution and opposition. And so people are fleeing Jerusalem where the persecution is centered. And look what happens in verse 4. But the believers, again, not church leaders, the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. 
the apostles and the pastors are back at Jerusalem and all the people scattered from the church are being sent out from the church, forced out by persecution, some of them probably leaving with the clothes on their back and that's it, but they're so excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for them that maybe they're begging along the roadside because they don't have food. They don't have things for their family. But in the process of their begging, they're telling people about Jesus. Maybe they've gone to stay with family, uh, family friends or, or someone that they have some kind of connection with and they're telling them in Judea or Samaria about this Jesus that they've encountered. Everywhere they go, despite the poverty, despite the persecution, despite the opposition, they're telling everybody about Jesus. And this isn't being driven by church leaders. This is being driven by gospel, passion. The gospel has so impacted their lives that they got to tell other people about this good news. They are revved up by what Jesus has done for them. Now, last year at this time, my wife and I were in Greece. And um, we had been in Morocco for a week and a half, and then we were and flew into Athens. And the first thing we did, uh, part of our tours, we got on a cruise ship and a cruise the Aegean Sea for three and a half days. And Betty and I have never been on a cruise in our lives. It was really, really cool. Uh, we went to all these Greek islands. We went to Mykonos and to Crete and to Patmos, where the Apostle, uh, Apostle John was banished to, where he wrote the book of Revelation. We went to Santorini, the playground of the rich. I, it was just, it was, you know, eye candy. It was almost overwhelming. And then we came back and we went Athens and most of the places that you read about in the New Testament we were. We were in Corinth. We were in Ephesus over in Turkey. Uh, we were in Thessalonica. We were in Berea. Uh, it was just, it was, it was amazing. And if you had the bad judgment to talk to me after we came back from that trip, you were tied up for half an hour or so. I mean, I just, I was so excited about that trip. And I didn't really care whether you were interested in, in, in Greece or not. I'm going to tell you all about it. Some of you are great sports fans, and so the other week when the NFL draft was held, you, you followed that. You, you knew who picked what player from what college, and, and you were tracking not only your team, but probably other teams. Probably for the first time in my life, I was kind of following the, the draft um, because we have, we have a, a, such a dysfunctional organization. I say we, the team I cheer for, which will remain nameless. We've got a terrible owner, a terrible GM, and we usually pick the worst possible players. Um, they look good, and then they usually get injured on the first game, and they're out for the season, things like that, or, or they, they're just problems. And so I'm, I'm tracking this a little bit. And probably for the first time in my life, I could actually talk a little bit intelligently about some of the players, at least that our team, our team picked. But some of you know all the stats, you know all the players, you know the history of your, 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 not only your team, but the sport. And woe be, woe be unto them if a non-sports person has, the, again, the bad judgment to ask you something about sports. And they're just trying to figure out, how can I get away from this person? Because you're so excited about it. I, a number of years ago, I started having some health problems, and it just kind of seems to go from this thing to that thing to this thing to that thing. And one of the things that I, I, I've now experienced that I had watched over the years as a pastor 
is that people who have been helped by some treatment or therapy or medicine, they can't wait to tell you who have a medical problem what you should do. I, I mean, there, there are some of you folks, all right, let, let's, let's just get it out in the open. How many of you are essential oils people? Put up your hand. Hey, there's people going like this. But when they talk to me, it's not this. It's, it's this, right? And CBT is CBD oil. And I remember when people were struggling with cancer and shark uh, cartilage was all the rage. And, and laetrile, which is made from apricot pits, which wasn't allowed to be used in the United States. So people would fly to Mexico. And I've watched over the years people's zeal of sharing their medical remedies with other people. And it doesn't even matter usually if the other person's not interested. Why? Because it's helped them. And they want so much to help you in your time of need. What about the Jesus who has helped you in your time of need? Are we as zealous and as impassioned about the gospel of Jesus Christ? which will far eclipse any medical need, any physical need we ever had. We're talking about an eternal need. Gospel passion is what incites spiritual conversations. And what's interesting is we look in the New Testament, we don't typically see evidence that when people talk about Jesus to other folks, that they're primarily talking about, look, you, you've got to come to Jesus or you're going to go to hell. That's usually not a big sell. There's, that's true. But that's neither usually where we start nor the, the heart and soul of it. It is that there is a God who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to earth for you. I remember uh, Pastor Jim Simmel of the Brooklyn Tabernacle used to say, we teach the law at Brooklyn Tabernacle. We teach the, what God commands us to do. But that's not what brings people to Jesus. It's the tender whisperings of his love for us in Christ that makes the difference. We talk about what we're excited about. Gospel passion incites spiritual conversations. I wonder... The last time that you had the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. And you're wrestling with whether or not you do or you don't. What is it that you're considering? Is it that I'll look foolish and I have to keep working with this person? Is it that I'll be made fun of by my peer group? What, what, what kinds of considerations shaped your decision? Was it that Jesus has done so much for me, I cannot help but speak about him? It's gospel, gospel passion that incites spiritual conversations. My second point, it's gospel power that actually ignites spiritual conversations. It's gospel power, namely the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of Acts. Chapter 8 again, verse 26. As for Philip, <clears throat> excuse me, as for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. That would be route 60. And so he started out 
Had he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, queen of Ethiopia. Now, the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. So he was a, a what they called a God-fearer, a Gentile convert to Judaism, a God-fearer. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, catch that. Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. And Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. And the passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated, received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And so, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Did you catch that? At the beginning of this spiritual conversation, it was the Spirit that began it. At the end of this conversation that led to the man's conversion and being baptized, again, the Spirit was doing the work. He took Philip away, apparently had another mission assignment for him. But this Holy Spirit was there. He started it all. He stayed through the whole thing. It was his work. That's where the power comes from. Listen, you and I do not have the power to change someone's life. You and I don't have the power to change someone from not being a worshiper to being a worshiper. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Philip is a, he's a church deacon, Acts chapter 6. He's an average Joe. He's not a pastor. He doesn't have a Bible college degree. He doesn't have a seminary degree. He was probably a Christian for a very short time at this point. But he was available. Are there power? Is there power in our words? Mm -mm. A power in your presentation and knowing the right thing to say and using the correct Bible verses? Absolutely not. I, I don't know if you've ever found this uh, to uh, be the case, but I have been talking with people already about Jesus, and I just, I just totally mess up. And yet somehow, down the road, probably through somebody else, um, or maybe me, but they come to Jesus Christ. I remember Becky Pickard wrote a book, Out of the Salt Shaker and in the World, and she talked about someone, she was in ministry, uh, college ministry in Spain, I think it was. And she was, she had met this woman, she was in a, a Bible study, she was an atheist, she was a, a, a hardcore drug user, just, she would be a problem when she was in their meetings. And this woman came to her one night at her, knocked on her door and said, Becky, I, you know, I, I'm done, I... I want, to, I want to come to Jesus. I, I want to give my life to Jesus. And Becky basically threw her out of her house. And the woman still got saved. Why? It's not our power. 
It's not your power. It's not your wisdom. It's not your intelligence. It's not your shrewd presentation. It's not the memorization of some approach. It's the Holy Spirit of God who chooses to use fools like us for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just take a minute and point something out to you. In your bulletin, there is a, an outline for how you can go from A to Z with someone, sharing the gospel just using a single verse in the Bible, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And they ex- describe how you can share the gospel from A to Z with someone using just the words in that verse. And out in the lobby on the table, there are some booklets like this, and one verse evangelism, that elaborate on this a little bit more, and they're, they're free for the taking. Just help yourself. Put out by NAB Press. It's a wonderful little tool. Now, I don't use something like that when I'm talking to somebody about Jesus, and here's why. Um, we, we don't know how to help someone toward the gospel until we know where they are. And so that means we have to be asking questions. And the danger of simply going through a kind of a routine approach like this is that we're asking questions that they're not, ans- uh, that they're not asking. Did I say asking? We're answering questions they're not asking. We need to, we need to know where they're at and, and what things need to be resolved for them, what concerns they have, what fears they have, what uh, oppositions they have. And so... Uh, I know these kinds of approaches, but they're simply in my head for my own reference so that I can kind of keep things orderly. I think everybody should have something like this memorized, but memorized primarily so you know where to go next at some point, but you don't start there. You start with the person. You want to find out where they're at, what what they're thinking, and what their objections are, what their concerns and fears are. All right. Now, let me get back to this issue of power. One of the mistakes that we make, and this, is, this goes back to what I talked about earlier when we invite people to church, lost people, only if there's going to be a gospel presentation that Sunday, gospel presentation. We think of it as primarily this person doesn't have the information that they need. Let me show you 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. <clears throat> Satan, who is the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And as a result, they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Do you see why I say the issue is not primarily information? It's not primarily an informational issue. There are many, many people who don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ who know the gospel. It's a hardness of the heart. It's a blindness of the eyes. And unless the Holy Spirit shows up, it doesn't change anybody's life. And so to go into a spiritual conversation on your own power, based on your own skill, hoping that you say the right thing is, is, is not only misguided, but it's It's not going to produce the fruit that the Holy Spirit can produce. Let me take you just a couple of verses here. Uh, Real quick, Galatians 4. I'm sorry, that's not right. 5, verse 16. 
So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And there's a great heading for evangelism. Everything else as well. And this summer, we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit. All of our lives should be uh, done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But this, this would apply to sharing uh, our, our faith with people as well. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And then he goes on in the following verses talking about how we fight sin in our lives and temptation in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. But then he gets down to verse 22 and talks about what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. The fruit is love, joy, peace. Can you say it with me? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. And brothers and sisters, boy, do we need love when we talk to other people and joy when we talk to other people. And there needs to be peace in our lives. These kinds of things can portray something about our gospel, but they are, are not the gospel themselves. And then he gets to verse 25 and he says, Uh, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And and nowhere is that more important than this idea of having spiritual conversations with people. We have somebody in front of us that we know doesn't know Jesus. Lord, do something here. Orchestrate something here. Uh, Design it for your purposes and your glory. I shared just briefly when we, Pastor Charlie and I came back from Tampa in February. Uh, we got on the plane and um, Pastor Charlie said, well, I sat in the window on the way down. You can sit in the window uh, next to the window on the way back. And I said, no, I'm, I'm fine sitting in the middle. There's three seats. I said, I'm fine sitting in the middle. I don't need to look out. And it was in the Holy Spirit of God's design because I sat down in the middle and the girl that sat next to me, the woman that sat next to me, was a veteran. And I had my U.S. Army hat on, and she goes, oh, where did you serve? And I said, no, I I didn't serve. My son served. And that opened up a conversation that went on for two hours. And through the, Pastor Charlie's over there here, and he's praying, and and I'm praying too, because I I have my trajectory. I want to go here, and then here, and then here. And every time I would go here, she'd go there. And so now I have to move over here. And then I'm trying to steer her back here. And then she takes me up here. And I'm just praying. And about two-thirds of the way through that conversation, I realized I'm never going to get her where I need her to go. And I'm going to be content with going where God wants me to go. And the Holy Spirit is taking all of this. And we had a wonderful conversation. And I, I, I'm, I probably got about halfway to where I wanted to go. But one of the things that happened during that conversation is I found out she was moving to Tampa. Uh, her husband's down there taking care of his mother who's not well, and they've been kind of separated like this for six months or so, and she said, I'm, I'm going to move down there with our kids. And I said, well, when you get down there, you're going to look for a church. And she said, well, probably. She doesn't go to church very much, but her three girls go to a Roman Catholic church religiously. And I said, well, if you look for a church, let me suggest this church that we were just at uh, where this conference was held. Seemed like a great church. Pastor, a pastor's a great guy. Uh, You should look that church up. And I gave her the name. And about an hour later, I said, now, you're going to Tampa. I said, are you going to to look up this church when you get down there? Yep. And she quoted the name of the church she had remembered. So there was some intention there. But I, I didn't get where I wanted to go with her. 
But I'm convinced that God the Holy Spirit got her where he needed her to go. Because this is, this is God's business. It's not our agenda. It's God's agenda. How do we access this power of the Holy Spirit? That's what prayer does. Prayer. We ask God. One of the things that I do in the mornings. God, if you, if you have an opportunity to take today for me to encounter somebody that doesn't know Jesus, just prepare my heart and guide me through all that. And then as that begins to happen, again, we're praying, God, take over. Don't let me muck this up. You take over and work it for your glory. Now, I'm way over time here, but let me say a few things in closing. A couple of months ago, Barna um, came out with a poll that they had done with millennials. That means those of you in your 20s and so forth. Ask them this question. How many of you believe that the best thing that could happen to someone is that they come to know Jesus Christ? 94% of, of Christian millennials said yes. But when they asked this question, how many of you believe it's right to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ? Half of those 94% said no, it's wrong. Half said it's not just I'm scared of it, not just I don't want to do it. They said it's, it's wrong. And Christianity Today was doing a, an article on this and trying to sort out what's behind this. And they, they contacted a, a, a millennial website uh, called Generation Distinct. And they talked to Hannah Gronowski, who is the CEO and founder of this, uh, puts out uh, Christian content. And she said, she blames the problem on uh, what is often portrayed by a saying that says, um, uh, share the gospel everywhere, if necessary, use words. You've heard of that, right? Uh, Poor Francis Assisi has been blamed for that, but there's nowhere we can find anything in his writings that would suggest that he ever said that. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Here's the problem. She says, evangelism for millennials. Evangelism is also often presented as an old school, out of style idea with little value or relevance in our fast paced urban world. Younger folks are tempted to believe instead, if we just live good enough lives, we can forgo the conversation entirely and people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and our selfless character. This style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and simple fix. And make no mistake about it, as our culture increasingly thinks it's bad manners to tell somebody that they should believe something other than what they believe, a cultural societal pressure will be ramped up to persuade us to do just this. I'll try to live my life in front of people. Think about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Is the gospel your good behavior? That's that's not a rhetorical question. Say yes or no. Is the gospel your good behavior? No. What, What is the gospel? Whose good behavior is it? Jesus. I mean, he because of perfect behavior, he could go to the cross and die for people like me. So if your behavior is so good... Are people going to be pointed to Jesus or are they going to be pointed to you? If, on the other hand, they see a broken sinner who has problems as well, who makes mistakes as well, but has a joy in life and a love for other people, that might win their interest. But living such good lives is not the end of the road. 
Sooner or later, people need to hear about, Je- hear about Jesus. What's Paul say in Romans 14? Faith comes by what? Hearing. hearing. And hearing by the word of God. The word of God. I hope I've made a case this morning for us to be on mission, to verbally contribute to God's mission to make more and more worshipers. The latest poll says that 240 million Americans claim to be Christians. I drilled down deep into some of that research, and I would say at best there's 109 million, probably more like 80 million Christians in America. Let's just stick with 109. That means that there are 220 million Americans, people we work beside, people we go to school with, people we play sports with, people we... Uh, people we encounter on vacation that don't know Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people here who need us. A lot of people here who need us. As we close this morning, what I want you to do is take that list of three people. I want you to go down one, two, three. I want you to go to the third person that's on that list. And we're going to close in prayer. And I just want you to pray for that person right now. Would you do that? Amen.